podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria Tellez interviews Zach First on The Daily Drucker. 366 Days of Insight and Motivation for Getting the Right Things Done by Peter Drucker. Zach joined the Drucker Institute team in 2007 and was named executive director in 2016. Under his leadership, the Drucker Institute has created the annual management top 250 ranking in the Wall Street Journal the S&P slash Drucker Institute Corporate Effectiveness Portfolio with First Trust, the KH Moon Center for a Functioning Society, and the Bendable Lifelong Learning System. Zach has written for Harvard Business Review, S&P Indexology, and Harvard Magazine, and contributed the afterword to the 50th anniversary edition of Peter Drucker's classic, The Effective Executive. Previously, Zach served as the inaugural assistant dean at Olin College, which was founded in 2000 with a $430 million gift from the F.W. Olin Foundation in order to reinvent engineering education. He holds a BA in philosophy from Haverford College, where his advisor was Lucius Outlaw Jr. He earned his master's and doctorate degrees in higher education from Harvard University with Richard Chait as his mentor. In 2020, Zach was named a visiting professor at Odomon Gakuin University in Osaka, Japan. He has served as a trustee and, from 2014 to 2018, president of the board of the Children's Center at Caltech, one of America's leading nonprofit providers of innovative STEM-based early childhood and preschool education. From 2013 to 2016, Zach was a member of the Board of Advisors at Payscale, creator of the world's largest database of individual compensation profiles. And from 2009 to 2011, he was a fellow of the National Forum on the Future of Liberal Education. Meet Zach at Drucker.Institute. Here is the interview with Zach first. In your own words, who is Zach first? Well, for most of my life, I think I thought of myself as an educator. And it took me about 10 years of work to come to understand um, even the beginnings of what that meant for me. So uh, initially, I thought that meant I was going to be um, someone who worked at a school, you know, a college or a university or maybe a high school Maybe I'd be a teacher. Um, and over time, what I came to understand is that um, to be an educator for me means um, to be a person who facilitates meaningful and positive change in other people's lives. And that happens um, in all kinds of ways and all kinds of places, um, probably just as often outside of formal education as it does inside of formal education. So my professional identity is really, um, I think, quite um, quite connected to that sense of being an educator. Um, and over the last uh, four years that I've served as the executive director at the Drucker Institute, um, my professional identity has also come to encompass that of being a leader, which um, is a singular experience in any organization. It's, I think, for me, not not primarily uh, about power or prestige so much as it is about being entrusted in a, in unique ways with the health and performance of your organization and about having uh, a unique set of responsibilities around um, developing your people for performance uh, and growth. 
And um, although I've always been interested in leadership, I studied leadership um, in graduate school. Um, this has uh, been my first role as the leader of an organization. And um, that's, I think, something I've grown into as part of my identity as well. Before we, I ask you some questions related to the book that you sent to me, The Daily Drucker, 366 Days of Insight and Motivation for Getting the Right Things Done by Peter Drucker. I have these warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. So I guess I have to ask you this one. What is success to you, Zach? What is to be successful? So, you know, one of the things that Peter Drucker counseled that I have very much taken to heart um, through my adult life is that um, the right question um, is always going to be worth more than the right answer. And in this case, he counseled um, always for both his clients and and his friends that um, the right question actually is not how to be successful. The right question is how to be significant. And um, those two things are um, often overlapped, but they're quite different. And the main reason why they're different is that um, success depends on a whole range of factors that are beyond any one person's control. Um, As a very successful entrepreneur who I got to know very well through my work at the Institute, um, said to me more than a decade ago, for every one person out there like me who goes out and makes a successful business and makes a lot of money, there are nine others who did the exact same things and had nothing to show for it. So success is really, is sort of a gamble about whether or not you'll be successful. But more than that, Success is an orientation toward oneself. Um, It's an orientation toward accumulating things that um, you can recognize as kind of your own achievements, your own material wealth, and so on. Significance, as Drucker counseled, um, is entirely rooted in a different concept, um, which shows up a lot in the Daily Drucker, this concept of contribution. And um, contribution is about um, whatever it is that each of us as individuals do to contribute to something larger in the world. And that may be the performance of the organization we work for, we volunteer for. It may be the contribution we make to the lives of the people um, with whom we share a community or a family um, or a circle of friends. But contribution is always on the outside. Um, And contribution is something that is within each person's uh, sphere of control. You can decide to make a contribution or not. Um, Success has something to do with whether your contribution really catches just the right opportunity at just the right moment. And that, you know, we can never know. Um, But contribution, um, we can always be oriented toward. And that's something I I try to hold as kind of my North Star um, through not only my work, but also, you know, my, my life as a husband and a dad and a friend. I'm wondering if contribution is also connected to purpose. I think it is. Um, I I think it absolutely is. And again, another theme that you find throughout Drucker's work that it's hard to make a meaningful contribution to anything if you don't know why you're doing whatever it is you're doing and why the thing that you're working toward is worth contributing to. So um, for Drucker contribution, I think in many ways was um, inherently he had a moral dimension to that word in mind, which was that contributions were constructive and they were toward things that were um, life affirming or humanistic in some way. So I suppose in the abstract, you could talk about making a contribution to something destructive, but that wasn't what he had in mind. Um, that, That purpose is the thing that helps you understand why your contribution is important to you and why it's important to the people um, or the causes you seek to contribute to without purpose. Um, you could just be busy being busy without necessarily knowing why. So true. And my next question is about how do we know when we are making a, let's say, meaningful contribution? Are we waiting for specific results from the outside or this is something that's coming from the inside? It's a great question. For Drucker, contribution was always on the outside. And the importance of that is that without an orientation toward the outside, um, we as as human beings are always at risk of becoming 
self-serving or sort of isolated in our in our outlook. And defining contribution as being on the outside does does two important things. One is it ensures that we stay as humans, we stay in in relationship with our communities and um, we're oriented toward our our fellow human beings. It also ensures that um, we have some means of holding ourselves accountable so that, um, for example, it's not enough to say, I feel like what I'm doing really matters and so I'm just going to go do a bunch of it and, and then have this feeling of contribution that feels good. Part of what Drucker counseled, again, is no matter what domain you're you're working in, whether it's one to one in a in a, a friendship or in a family, or it's in the context of a larger organization or an entire country, if you have a role in government, um, in every case, to be oriented toward the outside means you also have to go outside, so to speak, mentally. In some cases, physically, you want to actually go see the world through the eyes of the people to whom you are trying to make a contribution. Listen to those people. Seek out their life experiences and understand how what you're doing relates to those things. Um, view the world through their eyes to understand whether your contribution is actually a positive and meaningful one. What is life to you, Zach? What is this experience we are having? So I'll answer it, answer it personally for myself. Um, you know, what, what does life mean to me? Life, I think, is um, it's a couple of things for me. Um, probably first and foremost, it's a discovery. And uh, the answer is, is ever unfolding. Um, so I, I would have given you a different answer, no doubt, 10 years ago. And I will have a different answer for you 10 years from now. Um, so it is, it is a learning and discovery process, probably above all for me. It is also about relationships. Um, so that life is about uh, the ways in which we can connect and do so authentically with the people around us not simply be present alongside or in front of other people, um, but actually um, helping them understand us and being able to understand them and, and the depth of those relationships, I think, is, um, is life. And um, life also is, uh, in some ways, I think, you know, pretty elemental. You know, a lot of what we do as people is um, geared toward the perpetuation of the species, right? We have things that we do and child rearing and parenting, extended families and trying to ensure for future generations that are not, I mean, they may be philosophical in some way, um, but they're really rooted as the deepest roots that we have with us uh, are, the, are the need to ensure um, healthy and successful fellow people mm-hmm. um, today and for future generations. And, I, and um, I've also come to understand, I think, um, as a, as a fairly conceptual thinker myself, it can be easy to get lost in the kind of philosophical principles as answers to the question, but they're also quite material concerns and needs and priorities for, uh, for human life that, that drive and shape all of our lives. Yeah, and that leads me to a um, question that just came to mind about being a parent. What does it mean to be a parent to you? Yeah, again, you know, Part of what it means to be a parent um, is simply to provide an environment and and the resources required for another person's growth and flourishing. And and there's a great humility that's involved in that because we can't know um, our our children in advance whether they're biological or adopted. Um, they are all inherently mysterious, and um, part of what we are here to do is just to make room for them in the world and to help them thrive and grow. And uh, over time, I think I've also come to understand, if anything, my, uh, my, my generation of Gen Xers have inherited um, uh, something. I, I can't remember who wrote it, although it's a wonderful line, which is that our generation was the first that turned parenting into a verb. Um, and I think we probably think a little too hard about our impact as parents. We probably spend a little bit too much time worrying over and managing our children. And part of what I tried to do also um, over my years as a parent is to learn to make room for whatever will be, regardless of what I think it should be or what I hope it will be, is to just make room for what will be um, and be there to kind of love and support that, whatever it is. I love that idea. And I'm wondering if it is the way 
to also approach business and managing companies, employees? Yeah, there there is a real relationship um, in particularly the management of people. Um, and that is that, uh, you know, and again, a core principle from, from Drucker's body of work is every person brings strengths to their work. And it is inherent in having strengths that you also have weaknesses. As he said, there's no, you, you can't have peaks without valleys. And so in bringing both strengths and weaknesses to one's work, the job of an organization ultimately is to make strengths productive and weaknesses irrelevant. That's why we get together with other people to do things is so that the organization can get the best out of me and not be harmed by me doing whatever I'm worst at. Um, and that we can make that true for every single person who's involved. So this is true of sports teams and dance troops, and it's um, true of large corporations and churches and nonprofits, everything else. And uh, so the manager's role in that then is to be attuned to each person's strengths and weaknesses, to be attuned to how to help each person make their strengths productive. And it's not um, typically within the manager's purview to change what someone is good at. Um, strengths are really um, inbred, I think, for people. From the moment we're born, we have certain capabilities that are sort of natural tendencies that we can we can either develop or not develop over the course of our lives. But um, you don't tend to find people who pivot suddenly from being incredible athletes to being incredible physicists and back. Um, you know, the, that sort of thing may happen from time to time, but for the most part, it doesn't. And so the manager's job is to help people see into themselves and figure out how to connect their work with the organization in order to turn it into a contribution. That is, uh, yeah, has a lot in common with, uh, with being a parent. I suppose the difference is that once you get to the level of the organization as a whole, the organization has to have a mission and a purpose, as we discussed. And that mission and purpose will be different for an organization or a team than it will be for, let's say, a family. Right? The family's purpose may be to um, just kind of coexist and thrive as much as possible. An organization will actually have a particular thing in the world it is trying to accomplish. Um, and so the manager has to also maintain that orientation, not only get the best out of each person, but the best towards some larger goal that we all share. Yeah. Another question I remember asking somebody about leadership and management and companies is that how do people apply for specific companies? How do they know the purpose of the company. I think they also call it culture. That's another word. Is that something that it's clear and very easy to know? Purpose and culture are almost by definition invisible within any organization. Um, they are qualities of an organization that are, you know, akin to, let's say, the purpose and values of an individual human being. And if you said to a friend or a loved one, show me your purpose and values, what they will inevitably have to do is either tell you stories or they will have to show you artifacts. Here's evidence from my life of things that mattered to me. Or here's a story about a time when I made a decision based on my values. So when it comes to organizations, we have to do the same thing. We have to look around organizations for stories and for artifacts for rituals, for evidence of culture and values in action. So you can find easily some red flags. If an organization tells you, uh, here's our mission statement, and it's five pages long, um, that's a statement that's so long, it can't possibly stand for anything because it stands for almost everything. Uh, Drucker's counsel was a mission statement should fit on a t-shirt. It should be so short, everybody can remember it. Otherwise, if everybody can't remember it, then nobody will ever know exactly what it says. So um, you can be alarmed if an organization takes many, many, many words to express its right. most important purpose. Um, you can look around at the way physical space is organized. How do people work? Where are they in proximity to each other? What kind of environment are people asked to work in? Um, you can look at how people in the organization talk to each other correspondence. You can listen to the way they, you know, they just exchange pleasantries in the hall or over Zoom. Um, and all of those things can be evidence for you. And you can also, back to where we started the conversation, you can get outside. You can talk to people uh, 
who have regular contact with the organization to understand how it looks to those on the outside. So the organization may do and say lots of things inside that do or do not have a relationship to the way it is in the world. The closer those two things are, the way it is on the inside and the way it is on the outside, the better, I would say, for the integrity of the culture. Unless, of course, it's bad on both counts. But the organization is honest about what it is and what it stands for, and the outside world sees that as well, that's a good sign. So we think about this typically in individual terms. If you're hiring someone, you'd think about checking references to go confirm that a person sort of is who they say they are and are how they say they are. Um, one could check references for an organization too. So uh, you know, if you're interviewing at, a, at an organization, you know whether it's a, a studio or a nonprofit organization, a small business, um, you can ask them for uh, the names and phone numbers of a couple of other organizations or people with whom they work regularly. So uh, you might say, for example, at a studio, hey, could I talk to um, one of your longest running customers or a nonprofit? Is there another nonprofit in the community you partner with a lot? Could I talk to someone there? And you could ask them, what do you perceive this organization's culture and values to be? And you will get, um, I think, a lot of insight out of going outside to look back in, as opposed to digging ever deeper inside for the stories the organization tells itself about itself. Going back to that question about life, what life is, let me ask you another one related to life. What do you think the purpose of life is, the human experience? So as I sort of started to sketch out, I think, you know, you could think about this probably like like Maslow's hierarchy. We, you know, I probably have my own version of that. Let's not overlook the kind of the most basic purpose of life is just perpetuation of the species. That's how we got to where we are. We're successful at reproducing and protecting future generations. And so part of the purpose of life is to ensure that human society in biological terms is healthy so that we can continue to exist as a species. Beyond that, then I think the purpose of life is um, sort of the next level up. Now, just speaking for myself, um, is uh, what, you know, Socrates and Aristotle would call the examined life is um, some journey of self-knowledge and discovery uh, about who we are and who we are becoming so that we are not just um, kind of blindly moving through our lives, but we have some awareness and sense of who we are and how we are in the world. And through that, you can sort of move up another level to relationship and connection. Um, that the purpose of life is to um, make those kind of authentic connections with other people um, through the course of our lives that um, become intersections in all of our journeys of learning and becoming. Um, And probably the highest purpose, and it's one that um, I think is is in some ways... uh, it's a, it's a bit of an oxymoron for a lot of us, but um, the highest purpose is, is that Drucker sense of making a contribution. Um, and I think as a lot of the you know, wisdom traditions over the years have noted, um, you can't have a world full of people who are trying to make contributions to others if they are not also looking to have contributions made to themselves. And so that highest level of, of, you know, sort of achieving the purpose of one's life is both to accept and welcome contributions from others, as well as to make contributions to them in return. Um, that it, there has to be a reciprocity there. Um, and, that, and that's probably sort of those peak experiences we have are probably in, in that place. Do you have any spiritual beliefs or do you practice any kind of spirituality? I was raised a uh, Quaker in the Religious Society of Friends. Um, I then uh, went, and it's a very, it's a small population with an outsized reputation. So uh, there are there are more Buddhists in New York City than there are Quakers in the United States. But um, I was raised Quaker through uh, through high school. I then uh, sort of had probably close to twenty years of just a non-religious life, um, always with the sense that. At some point in the future, I think I probably wanted religion to play a role in you know my own parenting and family, but I, I couldn't have told you when or how. Um, and then um, 
came to, uh, in my mid-30s, the Episcopal Church, which here in uh, the community where I live in Southern California, um, the Episcopal Church is, um, I think, takes the teachings of the gospel and Jesus quite uh, literally in orienting itself toward serving the poor, the dispossessed, um, standing against uh, practices of institutional power and authority um, and standing instead for the integrity of each human being. Um, that orientation has a lot in common actually with the, the Quaker upbringing um, and, and that religious community that I was part of as a child. Um, the difference for me in the Episcopal church largely is they have um, really fantastic music and choirs and beautiful stained glass windows and fabulous architecture. And I love all those things too. And so I found that um, for me, uh, a religious practice could be um, not only theological, but also sensory. Um, it's nice for me to be in a beautiful place and to see and hear beautiful things as part of a, you know, a Sunday service, um, which was part of what attracted me. Um, and, you know, I, I think for me, the spiritual experience is um, probably most connected to um, what I think I, I described as kind of the sort of the second level of the hierarchy for me of life, which is around that process of self-discovery um, that there's very little, um, if anything in human experience, that's genuinely new and unprecedented um, paths that we all walk through or, you know, victory and triumph and tragedy and suffering um, through aging and loss and all the rest. Um, these are paths that have been walked uh, countless times before us, and um, that it's it's for us to try to um, understand and learn about ourselves through understanding and learning about those those paths that, in many cases, wiser people than me have taken in the past and, and left some record of. And I think a spiritual discipline um, can help us do that. Not only celebrate and understand our own experiences in our own terms, but understand them in the larger terms of, of humanity and these larger questions around faith and mystery and the unknown. Um, and, and there are thousands of years of wisdom traditions that are largely spiritual and religious in nature that speak to those things. So um, as I put this kind of quite succinctly, um, church is the only place I can go uh, every week where people regularly talk about paradox. Um, no other organization in my life, professional, nonprofit, news, online, kids' school, all the rest, not one of them is interested in paradox. In fact, they're mostly terrified by paradoxes. Um, paradoxes are deeply destabilizing. But religion is a place where people go for paradox. They look for it and they embrace it. And I found that spoke to something in me. So my other question that I have to ask you is about freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Zach? What is to be free? Yeah, so um, let's take for, for this one, um, I will give you one actually page reference from the Daily Drucker um, because it's my, it's my favorite entry in the book. It speaks directly to this. Um, and that is the January 10th entry, um, which is on uh, management as the alternative to tyranny. It's um, a crazy title for an entry, um, and it's a topic on which Drucker wrote quite a bit, for anybody who doesn't know what management meant to Drucker himself um, and how freedom relates to that. So freedom, um, I think quite importantly for, for Drucker, certainly in that entry and across his work, and for me as well, freedom is defined um, as being part of responsibility. Freedom is not freedom from any and every constraint. Freedom is having the ability to take and follow through on responsibility for something. Um, freedom is something that gains meaning within that structure. Um, freedom is something that helps to ensure human dignity. Um, freedom is something that uh, is part of the fabric of a healthy society. Um, but it's all in the context of responsibility, of contribution. Um, and, you know, for Drucker, 
as widely regarded as kind of the you know the the father or the inventor of the of the field of management um, as he started writing about these ideas in the 1930s um, and and for 70 some years after that most people today are surprised by that view we think of management as largely being about business management and we think management largely as being some mix of sort of um, airport bookstore trendiness and um, technical wonkiness. Um, and for Drucker, management was largely about timeless principles that related to the human being and human society and um, was the structure through which in a modern society where we're not ruled by, by kings anymore, um, in, in a modern society, management is largely the instrument through which people discover a sense of contribution and meaning. Um, management, performing responsible management, is what makes freedom possible for him. And he writes about that in that entry. That for him, he chose the field of management as his life's work, not because he thought it was fun to make money or talk to people about making money or even that he loved organizations per se. For Drucker, management was important because it was the alternative to tyranny. We either have, in his view, performing responsible institutions that people can trust, that provide them with a rational chance of equal opportunity um, through which they can make a contribution and be free, or that breaks down and people ultimately look toward uh, typically a strong man, every now and then a strong woman, to solve all their problems for them. And they're willing to trade their freedom for a sense of safety and a kind of magical thinking. It was great. Drucker's greatest fear. You know, he he grew up in pre-Nazi Vienna, Austria, and personally witnessed the rise of the Nazis and and fled Germany in the early 1930s. Um, he saw what happens to humanity at its worst when management does break down. And for him, freedom was all in the interest of sort of one thread within this larger fabric of responsibility, contribution, performing management, and ultimately a functioning society. I picked a different section um, in his book where he talks about freedom. He said, I love this, freedom is not fun. It is not the same as individual happiness, nor it is security or peace or progress. It is a responsible choice. It's exactly right. Very, very much aligned with what I was just saying to you. Um, as he goes on to say, right, it's not so much a right as a duty. Um, it's not freedom from things. It's freedom to make responsible choices one way or the other. Um, as he said, freedom is actually the heaviest burden that can be laid on a person. Um, I think we can feel that right now at this moment in time, whatever your political persuasion is, and this goes well beyond the United States of America at the moment. Many other countries are living through this kind of common moment in time. The more free I think of, we think of our society, the heavier a burden we feel around times like this, when we are asked to choose our leaders. Um, the freedom creates a tremendous sense of responsibility, burden in a way um, that at, at acutely anxious times like this becomes a real personal anxiety for a lot of people. Um, and, and that's evidence of that. If we didn't have the responsibility and thus freedom to choose, um, yeah, then, you know, all these things become a lot less relevant. You know, we're not free to choose. We're just sort of asked to accept. And then we don't feel the burden either. I guess I'll take this opportunity to talk about something that I don't understand much myself, which is uh, voting. Like my husband and I, we don't vote. And I kind of took that from somebody, maybe from him. I don't know that we cannot make good choices anyway. Why would you vote for this person or this person? They are the same. So, yeah, I would love to hear your um, thoughts on that. Yeah, so the American project you know, is a way that, that people talk about the United States of America and have for many years. And, and embedded in that is an understanding that this country is not static. Part of what makes America unique is that it is an unfolding, evolving, dynamic place not only because we've historically been so, despite the past few years, so welcoming to immigrants, um, but our ideas and our principles have also evolved. Um, we have a living constitution that's changed in huge ways since it was written. And part of that, um, it, I mean, let's say actually in entirety, I think, that depends on having an engaged citizenry. Um, that entire process depends on the people 
who live under these laws and structures having some voice in those laws and structures. Um, without the voice of the people, we have uh, kind of, you know, feudal chaos on some level, right? That the death knell for democracy is when people decide um, it's just not important. Um, it's too abstract. I'm not enough of an expert. Um, though That is the death knell for democracy. It is why, for example, freedom of the press is so sacred in the United States. Because the press is how the people learn what's happening. Um, and the freedom of the press becomes essential then to ensuring that we have an informed electorate. Now, the press has gotten fractured. There's all kinds of arguments over truth and standards. But it doesn't mean that the press is any less important. Without the press, we have to look to, the, to our own institutions to tell us what they're up to, which is never a good idea. right? We always want some third party. So, that's sort of core to, to life in the United States is this idea of being an engaged and thoughtful citizen, that part of what citizens ought to do is take time to try to the best of their ability to understand um, what their vote means and how their voice can be heard. And there is a sort of wisdom of the crowds principle at work, which is um, any one person is only ever going to have at best kind of half a view of things, but that as we aggregate millions and millions of people, we get closer to, to some larger truth for all of us as a state or a country or a city. Um, and so to that end, I would say um, you have very little to lose and everything to gain from trying it. Um, trying it just once, you know, uh, fill, fill out the ballot, uh, see what the experience feels like, um, the worst thing that'll happen is you'll spend a half hour on it, and decide it's all too confusing. You'll throw up your hands and, and you know, you'll rip it up and throw it out. But um, the best thing that can happen is you'll go through the experience, you'll fill it out, you'll send it in, um, and it'll give you an opportunity to reflect on the experience having actually gone through it. Um, and I think there's a lot of reason for pessimism and doubt today. Um, our national government, our president in particular, currently is kind of actively sowing doubt about lots of institutions and processes, um, which, you know, is intended, I think, very much explicitly to encourage people not to participate in the democratic process. And, and I'm, you know, what I stand for is participation regardless of your political values. Participation is essential. Um, it is essential to America being what it is. And I think um, to bring us all the way home here, you can think about as a citizen of the United States of America, um, voting is your contribution. That is the thing that your country depends on you for. That is the contribution you can make um, just as much as paying taxes and, and being law-abiding. Voting is part of your essential contribution as a citizen. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if we can think about it that way, then um, it may give us just that little bit of extra motivation we need um, to go out and take a bit of time and effort to do it. Not to mention you're fortunate to live in Florida where your vote actually really counts. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, right. Yeah, that's what you know, I heard. Mm. Unlike those of us out here in California where, you know, the parties are quite imbalanced and most elections are a foregone conclusion. Um, you got a lot of elections in Florida that, uh, you know, the entire national presidential election for the United States in 2000 hinged on about 500 votes in the state of Florida. So um, Florida has always been kind of on the knife's edge of, of uh, elections. And it's a great place to be a voter for that reason. Thank you, Zach. I come from a very intuitive place. As a woman, most women are like that, I guess. I can tell clearly and fast who not to trust because we are looking for authenticity, honesty, integrity. And then when we don't clearly see that, it makes it more challenging to make that choice. Yeah, yeah of course. And, and by the way, what you're describing is the situation managers are faced with all the time. You know, if you're going to go hire a new person for your team or your organization, you don't get to have the person you want. You have to pick from among the people available. Um, <laughs> you have a stack of resumes and you have to decide who's the best fit. And it happens in American politics. We have a two-party system. That's a binary choice in most cases. It's this person or that person. And so by definition, they will, the, your choice will never be perfect. You will always have doubts. Um, you should. Because we're not voting for supermen or superwomen, we're voting for human beings, and we're all flawed. Um, 
it's up to you, just as the hiring manager, it's up to you as the voter to make the best choice you can because the job will be filled one way or the other. So you may as well have it filled by the person you'd rather see, right? Mm-hmm. Flaws and all. Flaws and all, unless you genuinely are split 50.0 down each side, if, if you're slightly more inclined toward one than the other, then that's, uh, that's who deserves your support, I think, because someone's going to get the job. And there's wisdom in that intuition, just as there is wisdom in being able to analyze policies. Um, all of that wisdom is required, I think, for a wise election. Um, all, of, all of those contributions are required. Um, I wouldn't want every voter in the country to vote like I do, which is a fairly cerebral way of voting, right? <laughs> Not at all intuitive, right? It's very analytical. Well, that's good to a certain extent, but I want people who are intuitive voting in this election too. We need that contribution as well. Okay, this is really something new to me. You have made me think and reflect about it, which is very important. Thank you. I think I have to ask you this one too. How did you discover Peter Drucker and what inspired you to join the Drucker Institute? So I first encountered Peter Drucker's work in graduate school. Um, this was in the mid-2000s. I was studying leadership and organizational behavior. And I came across um, some references to Drucker. I thought, well, I better learn more about this because I'm seeing some, some of my primary sources mentioning him. I picked up a book called The Essential Drucker, which is a bit like The Daily Drucker, but with entries that are, are chapters instead of single pages. Um, so it's got some, it covers a bit less ground, but in greater depth. I read a few of those chapters, um, and I thought uh, a couple of things struck me right away, particularly relative to other work I'd read in management and leadership. One was, it was so clear. Um, Drucker was always just so clear about everything he was trying to say. It was free of jargon. Um, the stuff was not overly abstract. Two is part of that, everything was related to the human being. So whatever he's talking about, whether it's society at large, organizations, you know, budgets, <laughs> HR, whatever the topic is, it's always with the human being at the center. And so not only is it clear, but it also feels relevant. Um, to any one of us, whether we're studying leadership, practicing it, or subject to it, um, it it's relevant. Um, and third, he has um, his values are front and center. So there's no mystery about what he stands for. It's not simply that he's writing about management and he's interested in people. He's doing those things because he cares deeply, personally, uh, about the health of our society. And so for him, management is not just, um, as we discussed, it's not just the freedom to make organizational choices, whatever you want to do. Management is, is the freedom to do that because it is defined by the responsibility to do that. Um, and so for him, management was, was, I think, ultimately about responsibility for the human being, for the people who are affected by and under the care of an organization. All those things felt um, quite personally relevant to me. And then I had just the, the good luck around, you know, as anyone does and finding a new job around finishing graduate school at just the right time and getting hired, um, in 2007. So, you know, I'm entering my 14th year here, um, uh, just right out of grad school as the, the number two at the time of the Drucker Institute, which had just started to staff itself up. So I was, I was the number two on the team and I was also the second employee. So <laughs> I'm sort of number two by definition. And, uh, I wasn't sure it was going to be my life's work. I thought it was just an interesting thing I'd do for a few years. And it's, um, it's turned into my life's work, at least this stage of my life. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's become a real work of uh, passion and dedication for me, not just fun and, and excitement. Talk to me for a moment, Zach, about a phrase that I read in, in his book. really caught my attention to this, how uh, paradoxical it is in a way. He said, the important thing is to identify the future that has already happened. So reading that phrase by itself, it kind of doesn't make sense, but talk to me about it. I did read about the context and that made sense then. But yeah, for the listener. Yeah, it's a wonderful phrase. Um, Drucker was often credited with um, predicting the future because he was quite prescient on certain things. So he started writing about knowledge work and the knowledge worker in the late 1950s, um, you know, decades before most people who study work 
you know, in, in at the national economic level, started thinking about knowledge work as a kind of work. Um, and, and he had a, a whole host of things like that. Um, and he was careful always to say, I don't predict the future. Nobody can predict the future. It's absurd. Um, but what you can do uh, is, as he said, look out the window and see the future that is visible but not yet seen. And for him, what that meant was events are always unfolding. Things are always happening um, in ways and in places that go overlooked. Oftentimes, they go systematically overlooked. So if you are part of a sector of the economy that's too small, or you're part of a group of people who hold too little power or too little standing, um, all of society's structures and systems will be geared toward overlooking you. And for Drucker, if you looked out your window, which is to say got outside of your regular reality, the walls of your organization, if you happen to work in a large one or or one that has a very intense and, and clearly defined walls, get outside those walls, see what is happening, and you will discover um, that you can pick up on where things are going based on what's already happening. Um, there's a, a similar sentiment from a, a famous technology futurist who said, um, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. That's not a Drucker saying, but it's very much the same sentiment which is you will find that whatever will be true for most people 10 years from now is already true for someone right now. We just have to get out and find it. And that might take something else that he talks about that I believe in. It's to reinvent yourself. So he talks about that too. You have to make something different out of yourself rather than just find a new supply of energy. Yes, exactly. So he, Drucker himself really lived this he was clear about the importance of strengths and that strengths generally don't change. So you can know what kinds of things you're good at, but that could mean, for example, your strength is in um, connecting different ideas with each other, or your strength is in teaching or helping other people or coaching them. Um, that you would know your strengths at that level, but your knowledge that you use to turn your strengths into contribution your knowledge, particularly now, is always in a process of decay. Knowledge is constantly being renewed, constantly being expanded. And that to stay a kind of vibrant, contributing person with a meaningful life, you have to always be learning, always be expanding your horizons. And so he used to set for himself, I mean, he, one of his, his great strengths was as a reader, he, first of all, he could just read in tremendous quantities, but he also, I, I never knew the man personally, but as best I can tell, had something like a photographic memory, just extraordinary recall for incredible details from things that he had read sometimes long in the past. So he would set for himself, based on that strength, the discipline of learning something new, and in some, many cases, a new field entirely every year. So he would decide, this will be the summer when I learn about computational biology, or this will be the summer when I do a deep dive on Russian biographies, or this will be a summer when I begin to learn about Zen watercolor painting. Um, and he had very few things that he went back to regularly. Interestingly, the, the only things he went back to time and again, actually, were Charles Dickens and Jane Austen. And he thought that Jane Austen in particular was the greatest observer of human behavior in human history. She probably, he said, knew more about management than any management writer ever could or would. So he had a few things he went back to, both for pleasure and for learning. Um, but he was relentless always about trying to expand his mind, his scope, um, change his views of the world, deepen his views, broaden his views. That takes courage. That's what comes to mind, I guess. Would you say courage, Zach, to keep exploring your own knowledge? Absolutely. It's funny, funny you should mention that. Um, our, our tagline at the Drucker Institute is manage with courage. And that is very much grounded in Drucker's work. And in a particular lesson he had for managers, but I think it applies to all of us, um, regardless of our age or stage or position. And that is um, that, as he said, um, the most important thing to do in setting your priorities in deciding what the few things are that you really want to focus on, again, whether it's in work or in life, the most important thing is not analysis. 
And this is a very um, kind of contrarian view, especially today. We are so awash in data in the world. We have so many tools of analysis available to us um, that it sounds a bit strange to say that. But he said the most important thing is not analysis. Not that analysis doesn't matter, but it's not number one. The most important thing he said is courage. And for him, courage meant four very particular things. It didn't just mean kind of charging off into the unknown. Courage meant, um, first, choosing the future over the past. And this, again, is true in organizations as it is in life. Um, It's almost human nature to spend too much time and too much energy trying to fix things that happened in the past to address things that happened in the past rather than to engage the world and where it's headed. So as, as you mentioned, you know, seeing the future that's visible but not yet seen, as he would say, probably um, get, get out of your closets and look <laughs> out the window, right? Yeah. Stop worrying about where things have been and start thinking about where things are going, both for your organization and yourself. Related to that is focus on opportunities rather than problems. Trying to fix things that are broken for him was a fool's errand. Um, really difficult problems will probably take the entirety of your life and you may never get anywhere. Um, think about trying to persuade someone who so fundamentally disagrees with you that you can't figure out even how to get the conversation going. Move on. It's a big world, right? As he would say, work on the opportunities, the places where you can make a contribution. In some cases, you'll find you could, you could find opportunities um, with people who might otherwise be problems. If you move to a new area, if you move to a new thing, and you work on the opportunities that you have together, rather than on trying to correct each other or to correct yourself. He cautioned, you know, every now and then, of course, there are, there are problems that need to be addressed so they don't become detrimental. Um, so, uh, you know, you do need to make sure you're not, you know, your blood pressure isn't so high, you're about to die tomorrow. <laughs> well, let's get that under control. But then, you know, don't worry about optimizing it, right? Let's move on to, to the opportunities. So, you know, focus on the future, opportunities over problems. He said, aim high for something that will make a difference. Again, this has to do with, um, we have lots of tools and systems available to us today to set priorities and decide what we want to do with our energies, lots of things competing for our attention. It's too much. And if we're going to narrow it down to a few things, let's make those things that really matter. And again, for him, you know, things that matter are things that make a contribution. So what's the contribution you want to make? Focus on what's really going to make a difference. And finally, courage is about going your own way rather than jumping on the bandwagon. So um, don't let, um, particularly in this day and age, social media try to steer you toward one thing and away from another because it looks like that's what everybody else is doing. Um, Choose the thing that matters for you that's aligned with your strengths, with your contribution, with your source of meaning. Thank you, Zach, for being part of this beautiful circle of wisdom, I call it. I have a lot of things here that I picked up, but this has really called my attention too. And I thought it was fantastic the way it is written. The most effective way to manage change successfully is to create it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what you said in a way, just uh, going forward, embracing what is not there yet, but you can see the shades of it (laughs) in a way. Yes. How lovely. Yes. As he said, um, it is risky to try to make the future, but it is riskier still not to try. <laughs> right. <laughs> because by definition, the world is dynamic. Change is all around us all the time. And if we wait for that change to align with whatever it is we're trying to do, the wait might be infinite. Um, and we'll find ourselves in a constant scramble rather than to take the risk, the courageous choice to go try to make the change we want to see Um, with the understanding that we will often fall short. Um, Almost by definition, it's um, quite close to impossible to fully realize any change because it coexists with billions of other people and all kinds of unknown forces. But um, better to try and get in the direction you'd like to move than to wait around and see if you get lucky. Yeah. So I have a few more questions for you. I call them final questions. Before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in one of Peter's books? You know, there, there's one maybe that I think would be, would be fun to talk about. So the entry from January 5th is called Abandonment. And 
this doesn't mean abandonment in the self in the sense of um, <laughs> leaving your child. Mm-hmm. Abandonment in the sense of clearing out from your life or your work that which is not focused on your contribution and on tomorrow. So this is, a, I think, a, an underappreciated aspect of Drucker's work. He wrote quite a lot about innovation, which is a very popular thing to talk about these days. And as he always said, the, the necessary, not just the advisable, but the necessary first step in innovation is planned abandonment. It is to move from yesterday to tomorrow, your attention, your resources, your time, to systematically do that. So before you go out and start on something new, whether it's an exercise regime or diet or a new product or service or a new partnership, you want to begin by saying, what can I stop doing? Or what I do less of in order to free up time and resources and commitment for the new that you want to go pursue. It's such an important idea, both for us as individuals and as organizations. Um, and he has this uh, incredible line he wrote, which is at the top of the entry, which is, uh, he says, there is nothing as difficult and as expensive, but also nothing as futile as trying to keep a corpse from stinking. That says it all. Right. Right. Yeah. And it is teachings and wisdom for life. It's not just businesses, right? We can apply these wisdom in every area of our lives. It is indeed. Yeah. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Boy, what a provocative question amidst a pandemic. It feels (laughs) so many of the doors that are normally open to us are closed. I certainly have a few things that I put on hold for 2020, several of them involving travel because they just they weren't practically possible. And I suppose, you know, part of me thinks, oh, I'd, I'd want to rush out and do those things, right? Because they still matter to me. But on the whole, uh, I think not, you know, I might, um, I might eat a little more cake. <laughs> right. but, but other That's than that, I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think so. You know, I, I've, I've made my commitments in terms of my work and my my marriage and my family, and um, those commitments matter very much to me. And so, um, if if my time were short, living out those commitments as fully as I could would be probably the most important thing. And my last question is: What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Oh my goodness! Again, what a provocative question in our our current time um, as a global community, you know, when it feels like everything is so unstable and, and uncertain, as certain as I can be, um, I, I'm, I wonder if, there, if there's anything I would tell you I know um, without any doubt whatsoever. Um, I, I suppose is that I'll die. I know that without any doubt at all. Um, that, is, that is for certain. Um, as you said, my body will die. Whatever happens beyond that, who knows? But uh, that, that is a certainty you know, as will everybody around me. So we have, we have a short time. It's finite. We can't know what, what that window is, but it is finite. We do know that with a certainty. Um, I think uh, I also know uh, with a certainty that um, what I don't know is much greater than what I do. Um, even as much learning and, and growing as I, I think I have, I have done over my life, um, I, I don't begin to know even the half of it, whatever it is, um, the unknown is always much greater than, than the known. Um, and last, I suppose, is that um, I find a lot of, uh, a lot of truth, that, at least in the human experience, in, in the Christian teaching of grace, um, that uh, whatever is happening at the moment, and you find um, some similar teachings in Buddhism and other wisdom traditions, right? Wh- whatever you are up to wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, um, you will find some peace that things will be okay. Um, and it may not be for us to know when or how, or even why that will be true. Um, but it will be true uh, that there will be some, some deeper ground, some sense of being held, some sense of being connected, some sense of peace, whatever your, whatever your tradition teaches you the right words are. Um, but that will be there um, for all of us uh, if if we care to try to see it. Thank you so much for sharing Peter's wisdom in your own wisdom, profound wisdom, Zach. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valeria. It's been uh, been my pleasure.
I have one more technical question. Where can we find more information about you, your work, products, services, and future projects? Ah, just on the Drucker Institute website. So that is at www.drucker.institute. And uh, you will find there um, my bio as well as bios for everybody else on my team who makes our work happen. And uh, lots of hopefully accessible and and visually interesting um, ways to learn about our work. Thank you so much again, Zach. And we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Zach First and his work, please visit drucker.institute. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.